Well, we welcome you to our study on the Book of Romans, everyone who's here and our KFUO listening audience. Uh, today we're going to begin our study where we left off, which is chapter 2, verse 25. Chapter 2, verse 25. Everybody's favorite topic, circumcision. So, as we have seen over the past verses, Paul has basically been pulling out every support that people could rely on for their own salvation. Everything that they could dream up, he's pulled the rug out and said, before God, that does not make you right with him. And of course, with his audience now, many were Jews, and no, so now he has to deal with circumcision. Now, we're going to read um, the verses down through the end of the chapter, and then we'll talk about it, okay? For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is from man, not from man, but from God. All right, so let's discuss the whole concept of circumcision because it is a must, most misunderstood sign. Circumcision is a sign of the covenant that you are right with God by faith. Now let me repeat that. Circumcision is a sign of the covenant that God made that you are right with God by faith. Now, if we then make circumcision an act of the law that pleases God, then we have turned it into a work. We have changed it into a work. The law had not even been given at the time that God ordained circumcision in Genesis chapter 17. The law itself, the Mosaic law, would not come for 450 years. It was a sign of the fact you were right with God by faith. Now, was it an outward act? Yes. But what mattered was what was in the heart. And God made that clear over and over, even in the Old Testament. I, I want to read you... Uh, a couple of passages from Deuteronomy that already make that clear. Uh, Deuteronomy 10, verse 16 says, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Another very clear passage 
is from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. God is interested in the circumcision of the heart, a renewal of the heart, a change in the heart from unbelief to faith. So that we should not look at circumcisions as an outward act that saves. It did not do that. It was simply a sign you were right with God by faith. Now there's a very important uh, Greek term. I want you to look at uh, verse 29. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. The word inwardly means a secret place. A secret, hidden place. It's talking about the heart of hearts. The inside. The hidden place that nobody can see. They're one inwardly. God has changed their hearts. Now we should not be thinking that he's speaking to every single Jew. He's not. There were certainly Jews that were believers and believed in the covenant of God. But many did not. Now, we would be remiss if we didn't apply this to our own lives. So there was this group of Jews that would say, I'm a Jew because I was circumcised. They had no other, nothing else to claim. We can apply this uh, and, and correlate this with the sacrament of baptism. Okay? We can correlate this. Um, baptism is with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That is the outward act that we have seen many times in worship. But that is not the essence of baptism. The essence of baptism are the promises of God that change the heart. So in a baptism, literally, a child is transferred from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. Okay? When we use the words, receive the sign of the cross both upon the forehead and upon the heart, the heart, that, folks, is a minor exorcism. It's saying, Satan, get out of this child. He now belongs to God. He or she now belongs to God. But what happens in baptism is faith is worked and there's a renewal of the heart, a washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and changes the heart to one of faith in Jesus Christ. And that has all kinds of implications for the Christian life because we now walk in, or seek to walk in God's ways. Not the old ways, the new ways. Okay. So, the problem is, when people look at baptism, like many of the Jews looked at circumcision, and you proclaim 
I'm baptized. And now you've lived on the earth for 70 years, and since the day of your baptism, you haven't been back to church. But I'm baptized. It's like a, a rubber stamp guarantee. But the heart was not changed. There's been no renewal. There's no faith there. Faith would move that person. Uh, I, I've had, I've had uh, uh, people tell me that they are absolutely assured of their salvation because they bought a cemetery plot at St. Paul's Lutheran Cemetery. They got the receipt to show it. We can take God's word, God's promises, and make them external. And somehow convolute them into something we do. Baptism is God's gift. It's him coming to us. It is not us coming to God. It is gift. It is not what we do. When we take what God gives and turn it into something external that we do, and the emphasis is on we, then we have twisted what God wants. We talked about this last week. What about in the Sermon on the Mount? When God says, don't murder. When Jesus says, don't murder. And you say, well, I haven't killed anybody. And then he says, I tell you, you've committed murder if you hated them in your heart. So we have to be careful here of not doing the same thing that the Jews had done. And that is to make a cir uh, circumcision a magic outward act that guarantees you. And it's not a matter of the heart at all. We can do that with baptism. We don't want to do that with baptism. It is faith. Just as it says in the last verse, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not the letter. Okay? Not the letter. So it's, it's uh, he's making it very clear, and, and, and if your heart is changed and you're not circumcised, then it's attributed to you as... Circumcision. So, God cares about what's in the heart. And it's throughout the Old Testament. He says, don't bring me your bulls and your goats for sacrifice. The sacrifice of God is a contrite heart. Psalm 51 is a contrite heart. That's what God cares about. So, here, Paul again tears away one of those things that uh, people rely on that they've done or they've accomplished uh, that's in their life that they can say to God, this makes me right with you. And Paul is tearing all those things away. He's removing them all. All right. Comments, questions? All right, we'll go on. Chapter 3. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? 
Okay, if you're going to tear all these things away, you're going to tear the law away and you're going to tear the circumcision away, what advantage does the Jew ultimately have? I mean, they are the quote-unquote people of God. What's the real advantage? And then he says, much in every way, which is they do have advantage, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Uh, the sayings of God. Okay? Trusted with the sayings of God. The word of God. Now, let's talk about that for a minute. And let's talk about uh, a, a great misunderstanding when it comes to the word, the oracles, the sayings of God, the law of God. Now, how many of you have heard the term Torah? Okay. The Torah is the designation for the five books of Moses. But the Torah, the Torah has been translated with the word law. Law. Dr. Horace Hummel, a colleague of mine, and when I was at the SEM, Old Testament professor, said that the translation of Torah as law is one of the greatest mistakes in biblical interpretation. Greatest mistakes in biblical interpretation. And the way he put it is simply this. When you're reading the Torah, the five books of Moses, is it all law? No. There are gospel promises in it. Gospel promises. The promise in Genesis chapter 3.15 that God would send the Savior. He will bruise your heel. You will bruise his head. The promise in Deuteronomy that Moses says, and there will be a prophet come greater than I am. If you look around, you're going to find gospel promises throughout the Torah. Okay? So Torah needs to be seen as both law and gospel because law and gospel are contained in the first five books of Moses. Our temptation here is to say the Jews were entrusted with the sayings of God, the Torah, the law. But that would be incorrect. They were entrusted with the sayings of God, both law and gospel. The promise that you're made right with God by faith is in Genesis with Abraham. So there are gospel promises in the Torah. So when you see the word Torah, and at times even in the New Testament the word law, Realize that it may be talking about both the law and the gospel. In other words, the Jews were at advantage because they had been trusted with the word of God, both law and gospel. Not just the law. The sayings of God. The oracles of God. 
is to be seen in the broadest of terms, both his threats and his promises. His threats and his promises. So that's the advantage. The advantage is nothing they did. It's the word of God that was given to them. Now let's go on here. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify, uh, their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Now, it's interesting here that when you look at the, the words in the original language, the word entrust, the word faithful, faithless, all are the same root word. It's actually a play on words here. To be faithful, you have to have faith, okay? No one is faithful unless you have faith. No one is faithful to God in their life unless they believe in God in the first place and his promises. Faithfulness springs out of faith. Now notice it's very important, the words here. The words here are that what if some were unfaithful? Paul is not condemning all Jews. Not doing it. Some. Some. Some were unfaithful. Does the word unfaithful uh, imply they had no faith? It's hard not to come to that conclusion. The faith wasn't there. They were relying on the law. They were relying on the law. Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Okay. Men, women, may be unfaithful, faithless towards God, but God is never unfaithful to the covenant promises that he has made. So that's why Paul says, by no means. No way God is unfaithful. No way. So let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Okay? Everyone were a liar. God is righteous in his words. And so it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. In other words, God's word justifies what he says. And the justification comes when he is victorious in judgment. Now, what's actually the word prevail there, when you prevail, is the word you are victorious. In other words, when you go into a court of law and God speaks his word, it's over. He prevails in the court of law. He is justified. It is true. And what is true? He tells the truth and we tell lots. That is the, but he is victorious. He is victorious over any human being by his word. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? 
I speak in a human way. Okay, that's kind of a mess, so let's sort it out. Okay. It goes something like this. If we are so bad, if we are so bad, that by comparison, we are so bad it makes God look good, then is it right for him to punish us since we're making him look so good? <laughs> In other words, let's sin and make God look better. Okay, That's what Paul's saying. And if we all do that and make God look better, is it really right for him to punish us? Should he punish us for making him look good? Is God unrighteous for punishment? Now, Paul apologizes for even saying that. I speak in a human way. Okay, he's trying to think of how his audience is going to react. How his audience will react to what he's saying. I speak in a human way, and then what does he say again? By no means. For then how could ju God judge the world? Okay. How could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory... Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Okay. That's, that's a mess too. Okay. What Paul is saying is this. If the, and what the Jews were saying was this. Paul was the Jew of Jews, a Pharisee, and he became a Christian. He became a Christian. To the Jew, that means his life as a Pharisee was a lie. His life as a Pharisee was a lie. The great lie. So if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, God's truth did abound. Being a Pharisee wasn't portraying the truth of God. Then why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Because you are. Because God's word says so. Okay. Just because you made God look good by your lie doesn't mean that you escape from punishment. That you escape from punishment. If his lie gives glory to God... Why should he be condemned as a sinner? Simply says, I did my best to lead a horrible, evil life to show how good God is. Now, why should I be punished? Okay? And that don't work. That's not right, and we know it's not right. We know it's not right. So now he includes himself. It's not just Jews, it's his own life. And why not do evil that good may come? Okay? Has some people slanderously charged us with saying their condemnation is just? Okay? In other words, uh, 
there's no reason to say this. Why do evil that good may abound? Now, let me say this. Paul comes back to this later in the book. He leaves it where it is right here. He's made his point. He's going to discuss this further later in the book. Later in the book. So we'll come back to this topic. Okay? Questions, comments? Yeah, Ruth. Yes, um, uh, Ruth has said this is an example of cheap grace. Yes, it is. It is uh, simply um, going through the motions of saying, I believe, but the heart has not been changed. And, and you use your forgiveness as an excuse to sin. Well, I can do that today because I know God's going to forgive me. Okay? I know God's going to forgive me. That is cheap grace. Okay? And so it's like saying, uh, why did you do that? Why, why didn't you do what your mother told you? I was trying to make God look better. Well, <laughs> that won't do. Okay? That won't do. Other things? Yes, Steve. No? Question is, do we need to be circumcised? No. Okay? We are. We were baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that was our circumcision of the heart. Okay? And that applies to both men and women, okay? So it is uh, the, the, the God coming to us and renewing and changing our hearts. Yeah, baptism. Other things. All right. Let's finish the law. Yeah, go ahead. No. Um, uh, why were women not circumcised? The, that doesn't mean that the women were not also made right with God by faith. Uh, but uh, the sign was given as God ordained it uh, to men. But women were not left out of salvation before of that. that. That was not the case. No. And baptism shows that. Okay. All right. Verse uh, 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under Sin. Now, that's kind of his closing, a uh, 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 kind of his closing summary. All Jews and Greeks are under sin. There's nobody accepted. Nobody is at an advantage because they're all under sin. Nobody is less of a sinner than others, or more right with God because they do less sin. Either you sin or you don't. How many pinholes does it take to break a balloon? How many sins does it take to break our relationship with God? So, everybody's in the same boat. Now, I want you, if you've got a Bible, to turn to Psalm 14. All right, now let's look. Um, let, I'm just going to read this, okay? The fool says in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none that does good. 
The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? Okay. Now I want you to turn back over to Romans and listen for phrases that were like Psalm 14. No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now that's about as the most pointed description of human beings as there is in the Bible. Okay? And it's not pretty. But is the sum of what Paul is talking about. Now, there's some divisions in this list. The first, uh, verses 10 to 12, although they are always, there is not phrases. Okay? There is no one who understands, no one who seeks for God. Verses 13 and 14 are sins of speech. Okay? Speech. And 15 to 17 are sins of violence. Okay? Violence. So Paul is putting everybody together in the same boat. Okay? Now, that's his conclusion. That's his conclusion since chapter 118, and he's gone through everything that he needs to do to make the case, Jew or Gentile, we're all sinners and we're without excuse. And this is his summary. Now, there's two more verses. Now we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Now, the law here, you can use the word law in the narrow sense and the broad sense. The narrow sense is the law, the broad sense is the law and the gospel, all the words of God. Right here, it's very specific. It's the law, the condemning law that threatens punishment, okay? That threatens punishment. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Actually, it's in the law, meaning everybody. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. In other words, the condemnation of the law is such that it is on every human being, and no human being now has any basis on which to defend themselves. Their mouths are stopped, and everybody is held accountable to God. And there are no exceptions. There's no finger-pointing, comparisons to others. Everybody is in the same boat, period. It is a blanket statement. Everybody is accountable to God. No one on the basis of law is going to escape his punishment. 
For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. By the law, by works of the law, no human being will be justified. Now, uh, this is one of what we call the exclusive terms in the New Testament that absolutely and unequivocally rule out any works in our justification. Any works. It is by faith alone. And so what does the law do? Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law of God is necessary. The law of God is the word of God. And it is necessary because it is the law that shows us that we need a savior. Without the law telling us we need a savior, we would not believe we do. And we would go on our merry ways as if everything was all right. Later in Romans, he says, I would not have known what it was to covet unless you told me do not covet. I'd just done it. The law shows us our sin. The old phrase, lex semper accusant. The law always condemns. No matter when you read the law, you are being told you didn't do it. And you, and that's what works guilt. And that's what drives you to God because there is the need for a Savior. He drives you to the Savior through guilt and shame and threats of punishment through the law. There is no escape from his wrath. All are accountable. All are in trouble. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Through the law, there is no forgiveness. There is only the knowledge of sin, threats, and punishment. That's all you get with the law. That's all you get with the law. Now, one of the greatest words in the Bible is in the next verse. But. But. The divine but, we used to call it. The divine but is when God suddenly changes everything. This is the law. This is what's going to happen to you. This is the end of the line. You are under God's threat of punishment and death, but. And now comes the good part. But you're going to have to wait till next week to get that. All right, questions, comments? I know that you feel that you're on the threshold of hell, but next week we will bring you out. Okay. Any thoughts, comments? Yeah, we've got a few minutes. Okay. Uh, there are three uses of the law. 
The first use of the law is to keep civil order. Natural law. To keep civil order. Uh, if there are seven billion people on the earth and they're all sinners and there are no laws, think how much fun we'd be having. So it's to keep civil order. Second use of the law is the most important use of the law. It shows us our sin and our need for a savior. That's what's being talked about here. But there is a third use of the law. The third use of the law is why God gave Israel the Ten Commandments in the first place. God saved them, brought them through the Red Sea, made them his people, made them uh, his own, and then he gave them the Ten Commandments and said, now as my people, this is how I want you to live. And he gave them the Ten Commandments. So they were given to guide us through life. So when the pastor says, like Pastor Thomas did this morning, that we are to serve one another, that is exhorting us to live the life that we are to live um, as Christians. But any time... He says, serve as God has served you. You're still going to feel guilty because you're not doing it. The law always accuses. No matter which use it is, it always accuses. But it is given to us as a third use to guide us to know how God wants us to live. But it will still condemn us. It will still condemn us. Yes. Well, uh, the, the question is, isn't the law in our hearts our conscience? Not necessarily. I, I wouldn't go there because you can train your conscience. You can do the same thing over and over and over again that's against the law but your conscience no longer condemns you for doing it. Anybody in here ever uh, gone over the speed limit and didn't bother you? Need I say more? Yes. Uh, the question is, God gave us the Ten Commandments and then there are all kinds of Laws and rules that surround them come from them uh, uh, throughout the Bible. We have to distinguish between three kinds of law in the Old Testament. There is civil law, the way that Israel was governed. There is ceremonial law, the way sacrifices were to be made. There is moral law, which is the Ten Commandments and anything of that nature. To do, to follow those, is godliness. Okay? Is godliness. You are seeking to follow God's Word as His people who believe in Jesus Christ, and this is how He's shown us how to live. And that is seeking to live a godly life. Yeah. All right. Anybody else? All right, let's close. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.